Good evening, Rifters. This is Rifts and Rules, the 5e D&D podcast, where we go through the many 5e books and talk about various rules and haunted gameplay experience. I'm Nathan, the Dungeon Master of Riftwake. And I'm Remy, a player on Riftwake and a Dungeon Master myself. And today we're here to talk to you about maps. Maps. All right, maps. D&D has a lot of stuff happening in a lot of places. So maps are a very convenient way to illustrate where things are happening. So Nathan, what situations might a map come in handy in a Dungeons and Dragons game? When you be fighting enemies and you need to position yourself in tactical ways to shoot your fiery bits at people correctly. Absolutely. That is probably the most common use of maps in the game is for the purpose of battle maps. So on a battle map, it typically is a square or hex grid that has each space represented a five foot square so that players and NPCs alike can get positioned by players and the dungeon master to very explicitly see you are here, they are there. And to just align, okay, so if I shoot a fireball, it will be this big and I will be able to hit that guy, that guy, that guy, and my friend, but he can take it. So just to also ask the question, because it is definitely necessary to do so, do you need to play 5th edition with a battle map? No. So... It also is very much important to ask how complicated such a battle map needs to be. But actually, I should respond properly to you first on second thought. I'm just getting ahead of myself distracted. No, you don't need a battle map to play the game. You can very much play by theater of the mind where you just know, okay, there's a bunch of us. There's a bunch of them. Our characters are arrayed properly in order to most optimally fight each other. So you don't need to do it. but Humans are very much a visual species for the most part, and most of us, and this is something that both Nathan and I do agree on, is that it is helpful for us to have that visual battle map to just explicitly have everything spelled out. Now, where we playfully disagree, but also do kind of agree, is on how com complicated a battle map needs to be. Nathan, you want to hop in on that? <laughs> Okay, so there's a tradition on the show. Not tradition. Let's say a going gag on the show. Let's go. A that. historical that, object. <laughs> yes, that is known as the square. So as as the, as the name implies, it is a square, a square grid with typically a single texture applied to the entire map. Typically stone, in particular. <laughs> yes, yes. That represents the location the party is at. It and doesn't matter. The yeah, we, have, <laughs> we have played on the square when we were supposed to have been outside, and we just play on the square, which is just the default, just stone texture square. And that's enough, because for the sake of playing the game on a battle map, you just need a thing with squares on it to uh, be able quick. to play on. 
uh, if you do play online with either Roll20 or Fantasy Grounds, uh, they actually have a lot of good... Uh, what's the right word? Just squares. Well, yes. But they have a lot of just where you can apply the map to what you're showing the players, and it will actually draw out the five-foot yeah. squares for you and lock That's actually your player great. characters and just all of your tokens in general to the grid. So just that basic snap-to-grid feature that both of those programs do have available can make it way easier for everyone looking at the map to know, okay, that is there, it will line us up correctly, and it will just immediately just just lock to the grid, which just makes it so much easier to run a combat encounter, especially if you're a crazy person like myself who likes putting lots of tokens on the field. Uh, hey (laughs) okay so um let me talk about the reason for the square in question and why i believe more people should be using the square (laughs) so here's the thing the square is not something you take out because you think it looks good you take it out because it's useful the square is basically um the easiest way for you to make use of a battle map. So let's say you're like me, you you're, you have a lot of commitments and you don't have a lot of time to actually set up and make stuff for your game. So despite the fact that I do happen to have artistic ability and I can draw complicated stuff, I don't have all the time in the world to just be drawing complex and think about like, okay, if I put this here, where create like certain cool tactical stuff because as much as i would like to do that i don't have the time and most of us don't right so the square is essentially a thing where you can be like you know what you guys are going to be fighting a thing i'm just going to slap a colorful texture onto the background so that at the very least you know it kind of feels more better than just a blank thing so then we have Square 2.0, with such extras as blue or green to be outside or water. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, uh, that's pretty much the case. Like, the, the furthest extent I've gone for a square is I, I do happen to be a 3D texture artist, so I made a texture and just use that as the background, which it did look pretty great, all things considered, better than the other squares, which were just PNGs I found online. And honestly, that's the most common thing to actually use for battle maps, is just ones available online. Because there are a fuck ton of them, especially nowadays, with D&D having grown as much as it has in recent years, there are packs that you can buy just of pre-made super cool nice detailed maps there are also huge amounts of just free really good maps available online there's uh humble bundles available every so often for either D or pathfinder stuff that usually include map bundles as part of them so there are lots of ways to get really good maps cheap if not free just online Uh, On the other hand, if you are someone with artistic ability, you could absolutely apply that to making nicer maps for yourself. I myself would love to be able to do that because I'm the opposite of Nathan that I have all the time in the world since I have next to no social life or commitments outside of work. 
but I don't have the training or as far as I can tell any sort of artistic ability to do so for myself. So I would love to be able to do the stuff that Nathan can do, but I have the time, but not the skill. He has the skill, but not the time. It is an incredibly sad trade. fact of life. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, sure. You take over all of my shit. <laughs> uh, I get out of this country and get to go to Singapore, which is a very nice place to live by everything that I've heard. Hey, hey, I get to work for Intel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, hell, give me like a month. I could train you up to do most of what I do. But that also is not quite fair since I am the official trainer. So it's my job to get people trained up. Well, part of hey. it. Anyway. In any case. That's, yeah, that's. <laughs> That's a bit of a tangent, but uh, anyway, how complicated you want your map battle maps to be rather, you can have the square if you want, and that's totally fine. On the other hand, if you do want to get a more elaborate map, those can be a lot of fun as well, because one thing that is not applied to basic maps for the most part, unless you add onto it, is obstacles, and obstacles are honestly a really fun thing that a lot of people who play D&D don't take advantage of as much as they ought to. So if you have an outdoor encounter, there should be trees and ruins and shit. There's stuff outside. There's stuff inside. So if you just have the plain square map and it is just open field, then what is your rogue going to hide behind in order to get, you know, high, hidden and advantage and all that good stuff? What is just there's there's should, there should be stuff is my point and if you do want to just go that you know just a little bit past the basic of just square uh if you again if you're on either roll 20 or fantasy grounds and i'm sure there are other ways to play online i'm just not aware of them but both of those do have the ability to add stuff onto whatever map you're using they have layer options where you can have there be like the background map and then stuff and you could even have there be like interactable objects if you want to so if you have the type of player who wants to pull that like movie style stuff of like you know have the rogue try to swing across you know a ship on the rope or if they want to you know try to slide down the sail on a dagger if they want to you know, pick up some heavy thing and try to knock it in the way of someone chasing them to slow them down. You can actually do that with both programs. You can make interactable objects even, which could just be a lot of fun to see if your players a, even notice or think to do the things. But anything that gives players extra choices, as I say so very often, is something that I highly encourage. And having more stuff on your maps is a relatively easy way to do it. Now then, you don't need to make a battle map for every single unique situation that you come across. But I will say a good middle ground between just having a map and having a map for everything is to just have a few maps with a good amount of detail to them, with a good amount of stuff on them for the generic scenarios. Have one map of just like wood floor, just like a generic indoors. So you just have, okay, you have this space. If you want to, you could just draw lines on your map to say this particular building is this big to know how much space you have. You could then just have a good stone map. Because as much as I do joke about Nathan about overuse of the square, it's D&D. &D. You're going to need a generic stone map 
quite a bit. Honestly, that is the most commonly used texture for good reason, because that comes up a lot. So yeah, you should have wood, you should have stone, you should have one that is, you should have one that is just like open grass, because that is an environment that exists, and that's probably the easiest one to make. You should also have a foresty one, where you have a bunch of trees that can get in the way of stuff, so that can obstruct sight, that can obstruct line of effect, because a lot of it, just range spells in general, you need to have a line of effect to be able to do that. So by having stuff there, and trees are probably the easiest form of stuff, then you have just tactical influence on the encounter on both sides. So if you have then, you know, your mages trying to dart around trees, trying to set up a good shot, you know, you have good potential for trap spots if you're using, you know, kobolds or goblins especially, then you just have there be, ah, yes, there's an obvious route for the forest. Great place for a pit trap. And just having there be stuff does influence a lot on how a combat encounter can be run. Uh, besides that, you could have, you know, an oceanic one if, and just have like a few generic ships that you can just, you know, duplicate if you need more. You can make bigger or smaller because that's a thing you can do. So just having just generic terrain type maps, like you can get away with, you know, a half dozen maps and never use another one. Like, that could be enough easily. Uh, and of course, on the other hand, you could just have a map and just have your version of the square that's just the map you use for everything. And this really just does boil down to personal preference, both on the parts of the DM as well as players. Because some players can get annoyed if there's constantly stuff in their way. To me, that is how just the world is and how, therefore, the maps should be. But... It's well known that I overthink things a lot. And of course, you then have crazier people who will just want to make a unique map for every single situation that comes up. And for once, I lean in this direction, but I am definitely not on the extreme end. I personally do have just a set of general maps. I have, you know, a wood, a sea, you know, woods, sea, stone, but when there are like special boss encounters or special events, then I will like take the time to make, you know, a special map to kind of symbolize, hey, this is a special occasion. So, you know, most recently, my my group went to fight an ancient red dragon in its lair. So I was like, all right, I can have some fun with this. So I was able to just you know, make a map with some stone that had, you know, magma going like in a river kind of down this particular pathway and down into the caldera of the volcano. And just it was a really fucking cool map because I was able to find a nice cool lava picture to use as the kind of base that everything went around. And it was really cool. And my players thought it was really cool. And it just added to the fight to have that extra visual element, the danger that the terrain represented. It worked out nicely. But again, special occasion. So that's just my take on it. Have a set of generic maps and then have a couple of special occasion. But wherever you fall is, as always, just up to you as the dungeon master. How much time do you have available? Uh, how much resources are you willing to invest in maps? Because you could certainly just buy map packs for whatever situation you're looking for. There even are people who make maps on commission. Like There are artists who do that and just will make D&D &D maps to your custom preferences and 
that's fucking awesome. I've not taken advantage of that myself, but that's just because I am a cheap bastard. Uh, funnily enough, like I'm actually the kind of person who would actually optimally have every single map um, like custom made specifically. It's just that I don't have the time. And I, that, to me, it's just a sad thing. Sad fact of life is that you don't have time for everything. And well, yeah, that's just too bad. The, but the square is pretty great, all things <laughs> <laughs> The square is enough. And again, I give you a lot of shit for it, but we've had a lot of fun just on the square because it's enough. Like, if you just want to have that just little bit of visual element to the game, having just the square can be enough. So, that's battle maps, but that is not at all the limitation on maps. So now, let's zoom out a little bit more. So we'll talk about this from the kind of inside-out angle, instead of my usual preference, the opposite. So, besides battle maps, what is the next point of where a map might be useful? Well, so what I can think of is a region or continent sort of map where you can see the current continent you are on a extrapolation of this would be the world map where you can see everything so funny enough you actually zoomed out more than i was expecting you to just now so the next tier up to me at least would be the treasure map just a classic trope of fantasy yeah a treasure map so it is a very zoomed in view of a particular location that just has some small amount of detail perhaps even some amount of code of just to represent, there's a cool thing here. And weirdly enough, I don't see this that often used in D&D, even though it is absolutely something that can fit real nicely into the fantasy genre. So by having there be just, you you know, your players go through a thing and they find, you know, a treasure chest, but inside the treasure chest is simply a map. You then immediately hook your players because having a treasure map for most players is not a plot hook that they'll ignore that is always a risk as a dm of our players going to ignore the thing that you dangle in front of them but for some reason just the promise of cool stuff is a fantastic motivation just for pretty mm. much any human being. So by having this sure just dangling in front of them, by showing, if you just go to this place, there's something cool. I cannot imagine that many players would not be interested in such a thing. It's certainly possible that some individuals in the party may or may not be interested. But for the most part, I really think that that just would work out. Also, what is fun about a treasure map is that it gives you, as a DM, a chance to just have some creative fun. Because one of the details about treasure maps in particular is that they are notoriously bad, like unreliable. So if you have this map, that is, you know, not drawn to scale, not, you know, accurate to landmarks after however many hundreds or thousands of years have passed since it was originally made. Like, it just gives a lot of fun for you as a DM to just have clues 
okay, there's a clue on this map that we need to start, and you can just have a riddle, which is a good reason for you as a DM to put riddles in your game, which, to be fair, is something surprisingly controversial to have like puzzles and riddles is a i don't know it feels like it's a dying art in dnd but i feel that that's a good chance to get to flex that creative muscle a bit but yeah treasure maps are fun now zooming out from that is where we'll get to the more regional maps and from this point on there is a very important question to be asked which is do you as the dm have this map or are these maps available in world? Nathan, your take? Personally, I, I feel like these kinds of maps, when drawn, are supposed to represent the actual place. So generally speaking, I just treat them as like things that the players can use that as a representation of what the players would know. Um, about the region, assuming that they are from, they are from there, but not actual representations of the items in world. Because one one thing that you can do if you do have the time or resources or the artistic ability to actually make these maps is you you might want to make two versions: one which is more accurate to the real world, and another version where it's what is in world so like what people have made so it might be inaccurate in a whole bunch of areas and that could be its own interesting bit um and also like you can take that in world and create a third one where it's like oh maybe the party doesn't know about a bunch of things and you can just like cover it up you know cover up like certain icons on the map that would not always be there i am highly amused at the way you describe all of that because that's pretty much how i have my own world maps so uh just for fun before we started recording i showed nathan a map just from one of my old fourth edition games years and years ago uh on it there are 42 just colored icons of just stuff in that particular area so i as the DM just had like my list of, ah, yes, at number 18 is this particular thing. And, you know, number 24 is something that also is a really powerful, you know, a magic item in a tomb. However, it's already been looted. Oh, no, because that's one detail that irks me a lot in D&D is every tomb still has its stuff. I mean, just looking at our world's history tomb robbing has been a thing forever in a wait, world Remy, wait <laughs> I, i've got uh -huh. a, I've, I've got a question for you yes. like generally opinion of uh, certain acts are like don't piss off the players because like due to things outside their control so what what do you have to say about this because it, it the, the way that this works is that sure there's a logic behind that but in the end it's something that the players go out of their way to get but after all that effort and stuff it's just gone how do you sell that so that's actually a somewhat complicated question so there's a few separate and related answers number one is that well my players know and if any new people were to join i would make very clear to them at the start that my world is lived in it has been running for years but and the world itself is a world made by me 
So stupid amounts of detail in ridiculous places with logic applied in ways that no sane person would. Just people Mm -hmm. who know me generally learn that about me pretty quickly. (laughs) So in that instance, they know there will be places where stuff just is dealt with. But what is also kind of neat about that is there are people who restock dungeons for just many many different reasons sometimes there's like a family tradition for like the tomb that has been in their family for thousands of years that like you don't just get inheritance that when you know your you know father or grandfather dies then shit just gets put back in the tomb and if you want to get it then you need to go through the gauntlet to earn it earn your inheritance and that there is no just free inheritance to you know certain clans or certain family lines so that creates just one way of how dungeons can get refilled just over time and if adventurers stumble across you know a tomb that is actually empty empty then they can either a find that out when you know traps are already just visibly broken in the first couple of corridors or they just see corpses of you know tomb guardians that have already been slain there are ways to make it clear to players before they go in that oh okay this looks like it has already had people through here or there might just be like footprints in the dust or there might be like a history check available that oh yeah this is actually a famous location you know uh great adventures you know 60 years ago uh you know told stories like that the bards have passed down about this tomb and that they found this really cool thing that is now in this museum at some other place like there are lots of ways to make it clear to players that a place either is empty is full like there are lots of ways to do that you can have there be just magic traps that oh okay you know that you know maybe this type of trap is known to just you know work for 600 years and that if you know it's not working then oh okay then there's no way that there's anything left in this at this point you know or maybe there's some tombs where your players might just find a thing that the previous people who went through didn't find. So maybe just as the compensation, like the balance world scale, like they may just stumble across an easy find every software where they didn't have to go through all the hard shit because someone else did that, but didn't find one of the cool things in there. So in the big picture, things should balance out, you know, roles permitting, of course. And just to make it clear to players that that is the case and that there is, you know, intended balance through the world, that I'm not trying to fuck them over, that I do have a map that specifically outlines this one has stuff, this one does not, and that there may be hints, or there also may be cases where there are just really well-built tombs that just get taken over by something else that has cool stuff. So maybe the original thing that was in there is no longer there, but whoever has taken it over was strong enough to hold it and therefore probably has cool stuff that the party can kill them to take. Like, there are so well, I many do have angles. To say, <laughs> I, I do have to say that like the, the reason why yours works is definitely a case of where when you go in, when the part like when the players go in, they, they go in with the understanding of that, and th- that's what I really want to point to attention to. Where it only is 
fun and interesting because Remy already has like a sort of like established the, the social contract with my players. Yes, exactly. Like as we have talked about at length in that episode and just in many others before and since, just having the understanding of your players of how your world works if there are non-standard things is very important to know in some capacity, whether that is like a more explicit understanding of, hey, this doesn't work quite as standard, be aware of that, or to just have the level of trust where you can just say, hey, there will be things that are different than typical expectations. I won't tell you what they are, but just so you know, some things won't be exactly according to how you expect, but I will never do anything to purposefully fuck you over, and you just you know, trust me as the DM to find that balance. And whether you want to be more explicit or just have the social contact to just trust me, I got this, again, just depends on you, your world, and your own players. Because some players just don't like having expectations messed with. Some people love the surprise. One thing that is a problem a lot of the time for a lot of experienced D&D players is the is just when you've been playing for long enough, you do a lot of the time start learning, oh, okay, uh, it, oh, it's a troll. I need to fight. I need fire or acid to stop the regeneration. Excuse me. Need to stop the regeneration. But if your DM decides to throw a curveball at you and just, you know, throws a troll at you that just is you know, covered in red scales for some reason and just, you know, exudes heat off of its body. And you're like, wait, what the fuck? This is a weird, this is something unexpected. And things that are unexpected can be very, very good to people who are starting to fall into that rut of, I know what's going to happen all the time because I, I've read the monster manual or, you know, I've read all the books as a player, so I know what things are. But then if you have, you know, a troll that ate a red dragon somehow and then managed to get fire immunity because of, you know, troll's ability to get stuff that it eats, then you then have a troll that can only be stopped by acid damage, which is really uncommon. So that makes it really fucking hard to take down. And just that kind of play against expectations is something new and potentially interesting. But anyway, that was a hell of a tangent. We're meant to be talking about maps. Uh, oh, actually, one thing I will just mention about creatures and maps. One of the kind of classic just aspects of fantasy map making is the, you know, here there be dragons note on certain maps. So this is definitely more the case when you have that kind of larger scale zoomed out a little bit more now. But if you did want to have accurate world maps or just accurate regional maps even and actually have there be known for some cases you know oh you know there's a family of you know blue dragons that you know live in a cave system that they've dug you know under the desert sands in somewhere around that spot we don't know exactly where but you know we suggest you go around that area like to let it be known that the world is aware that shit exists because any magical D&D world just knows there is dangerous shit out there. And if it is a long-lived creature, then that's the kind of thing that ought to get put on a map. 
So there should be like local gossip of, okay, you know, you can add details to the map as you learn them. This is something that I've actually had a lot of fun with with my own party just over years, really, is that I made a simplified version of the world map with what is common knowledge. And then that map was given to a player in the party. And this is, you know, something that I made. So they have this actual, you know, PDF map that they can look at. And then when they want to, they can say, you know, I add a note of, oh, there's this thing here. Or, oh, there's, you know, rumor that there's this thing here. Oh, uh, there's this, you know, kind of druid hermit in this kind of out of the way place that he was a cool guy. So I want to remember that that's the spot where he lives. And the ability to have the players add things to the map as they learn them is a super fun just level of interactivity with the world. And also as a DM, it gives you excellent hints of what the players actually find interesting or valuable information-wise. This is the stuff that they care about. So that could help steer you into just the kind of stuff to put out there, whether you do want there to just be, okay, so they like it, you know, taking note of characters. They like taking note of monsters. And it just gives you knowledge on what the players care about, which can be super, super useful in shaping the game experience for all of you. So now let's zoom out to the bigger picture, which is a world map. This is something that is kind of difficult because... Again, most people don't have the kind of drawing knowledge to really make a world map. Or, you know, if you have people like, you know, people like myself who want to make a kind of more accurate world map to understand, okay, how does, you know, tectonics work? How does volcanoes work? How do water currents work? How do air currents work? Like trying to learn like the actual world building mm. side of world building. <laughs> so I obviously, me being me, did just ridiculous amounts of research on all kinds of stuff. And I'm sure that there are things that I have fucked up. Uh, thankfully, this is one of those cases where you just do have to kind of accept, you know, DM hand wavium of, okay, there's almost certainly like some stuff that I fucked up just because of my lack of understanding on the subject. But hey, magic can just fill that gap. Like maybe the currents are weird because there's a portal to the elemental plane of water in that spot. And then that creates some enormous additional uh, just pressure that shoves the current into that other direction. And that's why it works that way. And then you also open up the world to like, like planar level kinds of shenanigans, which is quite a subject in itself that we'll actually be talking a lot more about on Thursday. So maps in the game can be an extremely useful tool from the smallest scale of the battle map all the way up to a world map to show where everything is in the world and whether that is for the player's eyes or dungeon master's eyes only. It can be a lot of fun if you have the time available, but it can still be a lot of fun with just a square. Thanks for listening to this episode of Riffs and Rules. Please leave us a review and give us five stars on iTunes. So, so support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. 
tier starts low as a dollar and even that much really helps us out supporters get benefits such as behind the scenes content early access to episodes access to the patreon discord where we will shower the cast and even a shout out on the show find us on social media on twitter at riffwake podcast on facebook as riffwake and reddit on the subreddit r slash riffwake podcast and now we send us an email riffsandrules at gmail.com that's riffs and rules at gmail.com thanks for listening bye Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.